0: Thanks, folks, for leading us in singing this morning. Appreciate your efforts and help. Good morning, folks. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, please turn to John chapter 17. Here in John chapter 17, we find a transcript of the prayer that Jesus prayed after leaving the upper room. Jesus and his remaining disciples are somewhere between that upper room where he had gathered them together to celebrate a Passover meal, and the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas Iscariot, of course, has left them earlier in the evening. He's gone out into the night to make arrangements with the Jewish religious leadership that wanted to put Jesus to death. Already back in John chapter 5, because they understood Jesus was claiming to be equal with God, and they considered that blasphemy and worthy of death. And then in John chapter 11, verse 53, just after Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, the chief priests and Pharisees called a council meeting where they decided together that they would plan to kill him and now here in John chapter 15 Jesus is just now hours away from his death by crucifixion it was as it, it was as Jesus and his 11 remaining disciples were making their way through the dark and dusty streets of the city of Jerusalem, that Jesus began to pray. And in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, he prays first for himself. In John 17, 6 to 19... He then prays for his disciples. In verse 20 to 26, he prays for those who will believe as a result of his disciples' message. Last week, we focused on Jesus' prayer for himself and identified the desires that compelled him to pray. And the thrust of last week's message was that as we, too, adopt those desires, we will be compelled to abide with Christ in prayer. I'm trusting and praying that we will be encouraged this morning as we study And learn how Jesus prayed for his disciples. Our examination of these verses will reveal a loving and caring intercessor who offered affirmations and made appeals on behalf of his disciples. Interesting to note, the Apostle Paul in his letter to believers in the city of Rome asked who will, compel, who will condemn us? And he answers his question with these words. No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in a place of honor at, the, at God's right hand, pleading for us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34. The New American Standard Bible translates that last phrase, who also intercedes for us. Beloved, be encouraged. Sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, Jesus intercedes for us. And one commentator that I was reading this past week, made the observation that the length of this section of his prayer, the length of it, verses 9 or verses 6 all the way to 19, suggests that Jesus had greater concern for his disciples than for his own welfare. That's the kind of intercessor who is seated in that place of honor at God's right hand, who makes intercession for you and for me. Do you believe that? If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading from God's word. Begin reading at verse 1 of John chapter 17, and we'll read through to the end of verse 19. Beginning at verse 1 of John chapter 17, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to, who, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifest your name to the men whom you gave me out out of the world, They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I asked on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have joy, my joy, made full in themselves. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, what a privilege to be able to address you as our Father who is in heaven. Thank you for your word, both the word made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and the written word that we hold in our hands, can read, study, and with the help of your spirit, who indwells every genuine believer, understand it and assimilate it so that little by little, Our lives are transformed from the inside out, and we become more and more like Jesus in our words and in our deeds, in our actions and reactions, in our thoughts and our feelings. Father, may that sanctifying process continue this morning as we focus our intention on Jesus' prayer for his remaining 11 disciples. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Warren Worsby, pastor, Bible teacher, conference speaker, and prolific Christian author, died last month at the age of 89. Here's one of his famous quotes. Can you read it on the screen? Let me read it. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. And we must be on our guard at all times. That makes me tired just thinking about it. But that doesn't make it any less true. Reminds me of a repeating line in a theme song of a TV series that our kids have us watching right now. the, The phrase that keeps ringing in my ears is, it's a jungle out there. It's a jungle out there. And Jesus warned his disciples at the end of chapter 16. In this world, you will have trouble. Trouble and struggle is an unavoidable reality of living in a less than perfect world surrounded by less than perfect people and immersed in less than perfect circumstances folks we all need encouragement every one of us encouragement from above prepares us for life here below do i hear an amen it's true Words of affirmation are encouraging. Here in John chapter 7, Jesus' intercession for his disciples include words of affirmation. Look again at verse 6. I have manifest your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. If you're in the habit of marking up your copy of the scriptures, I would encourage you to underline or highlight that last phrase. They have kept your word. Isn't that interesting? Jesus has manifest or revealed the New Living Translation and the New International Version both use the word revealed. So Jesus revealed his Father to these disciples. In other words, he introduced them to things about his Father that they did not know or understand about him. Information that had not previously been known or Remained hidden to them, or they certainly didn't understand it. Because of Jesus, these 11 disciples had a new understanding of his Father, of his person, his plans, his purposes, his priorities, his perspective. They now had a fuller understanding of the Father because of Jesus' life and ministry. In word and in deed, Jesus exposed, revealed, manifest the Father to these men. The men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours, and you gave them to me. Is referring to these. 11 disciples, who were with Jesus, actually overhearing him pray this prayer. So they hear Jesus when he says, they have kept your word. Is that not an endorsement or some kind of affirmation? And what exactly does they have kept your word mean? What would that mean, exactly? Jesus affirmed their obedience, right? How would you feel if you were one of those men walking along behind Jesus, listening to him pray, pray, and he's referring to you when he says, they have kept your word. Listen, you and I are not newcomers to this story. Many of you have been here in most Sundays as we've made our way through chapter 1, 2, 3, all the way to chapter 16. We know that these men are far from perfect. But listen again to Jesus' affirmation. They have kept your word. He's not demanding perfection before he offers words of affirmation. Some of us need to be reminded who it is in scripture that is accused that is the accuser of the brethren. Certainly there is a time and occasion for conviction, repentance, and confession. In fact, the psalmist describes one of those dark times when he writes, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Psalm 32. No question. Those are tough times. But God's forgiveness made available through the accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ invites us to grow past those failures. Let it go. Feed my sheep. We'll eventually get to John chapter 21, I promise. And there we will hear Jesus reinstate Peter after his three strikes and you're out denial of even knowing him in the high priest's courtyard. Write it down. Better yet, Allow it to find residence in your heart. Perfection was not a prerequisite for Jesus' affirmation. That's important. He affirmed their obedience. Look at verses 7 and 8. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. The phrase here that you may want to underline is, they believed that you sent me. And granted, there's a lot these 11 men still do not understand. But what they did understand, they believed. What they believed was that Jesus had truly come from God. That he was the Christ, the son of the living God, according to Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. And notice the everything in verse 7 is narrowed. It becomes the words of his father had given him to speak in verse 8. In John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus had already confessed. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what to say and what to speak. So Jesus was really God's mailman. He was delivering, so to speak, God's message to his disciples. They received it, and although they did not fully understand it, not completely, but what they understood, they believed. And Jesus affirmed their belief. Let's move on to verse 9. I asked on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I've underlined, for they are yours. Compare that to what we read earlier in verse 6. The men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours, and you gave them to me. What does that tell us about these men. Three things. Number one, these men first belong to the Father. Secondly, they had been given to Jesus as a gift from the Father. And thirdly, because they had been given to Jesus, they are no longer in the world. They are still in the world, but they are no longer of the world. All that set them apart from the world. When the Apostle John, you'll remember, refers to the world, he's talking about that system that stands in opposition to God, includes people and everything else, anything and everything that stands in opposition for what God stands for. That's the world. And for that world, Jesus was not praying. D.A. Carson writes, the fundamental reason for Jesus' self imposed restriction as to whom he prays for at this point is not utilitarian. It's not for practical reasons or missiological, but theological. They are yours, they belong to God. Jesus affirms their identity. Jesus' prayer indicated that at this point in time, he was clearly laser-focused on these 11 men. Notice verse 10. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. That sounds like an appropriate mantra for a healthy marriage. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. The Father and Son enjoyed a mutual ownership that should be the in, should be inherent in the most intimate relationships on the planet. This claim of mutual ownership is just more evidence that Jesus was claiming to be deity. I've underlined that last phrase. I have been glorified in them. Jesus was acknowledging that he had been glorified in the lives of these 11 men. In our study last week, Jesus had asked the Father to glorify him so that his death resurrection and ascension would glorify the Father. Look at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Now here in verse 10, it is his disciples who have glorified him. And again from last week, you heard To glorify someone means to bestow honor, admiration, praise on them, either personally or cause other people to do that. One commentator suggests that the extent to which the disciples' lives have glorified Jesus, and I'm quoting, is still pathetically thin. And Jetty goes on to say, it was still infinitely better than what the world was offering. And so we find Jesus affirmed their worship. Is that not encouraging? Jesus, our intercessor, did not require perfection. In fact, working with uneducated, and untrained men, according to the assessment of the Jewish religious leaders themselves in Acts chapter 14, verse 13. In fact, that New Living Translation reads, ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures, or the New International Version refers to them as unschooled, ordinary men. Beloved, these 11 men are people just like you and me. Ordinary men, ordinary people. And Jesus, in a conversation with his father, a private conversation with his father, affirmed their obedience to his word, their belief in him, their identity with his father, and their worship of him. If that does not encourage us, brothers and sisters, I don't know what will. God delights in affirming spiritual growth. He is our number one cheerleader. Max Lucado, in a blog titled God is Cheering You On, writes the following. God is for you, not maybe, not has been, not was, not would be, but God is. He is for you. Today, at this hour, at this minute, as you read this sentence, no need to wait in line or come back tomorrow, he is with you. He could not be closer than he is at this second. His loyalty won't increase if you are better, nor lessen if you are worse. He is for you. God is for you. Turn to the sidelines. That's God cheering your run. Look past the finish line. That's God applauding your steps. Listen for him in the bleachers, shouting your name. Too tired to continue? He'll carry you. Too discouraged to fight? He's picking you up. God is for you. God is for you. Had he a calendar, your birthday would be circled. If if he drove a car, your name would be on his bumper. If there is a tree in heaven, he has carved your initials in the (laughs) bark. We know he has a tattoo and we know what it says. I have written your name on my hand, he declares. Isaiah 49, verse 16. Listen to the testimony of the psalmist. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He renews my strength. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. Psalm 23. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 8, rapid fires a series of rhetorical questions. Listen carefully. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, Rather, he who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Are there times when we get discouraged? You bet there are. But as genuine believers, we of all people have the means And the opportunity to move beyond our discouragement. Remembering that we have an intercessor. Who is seated in the place of honor at God's right hand. Interceding for us. With words of affirmation. May help. And follow in his steps. Give as you have received. Affirm others without demanding perfection. Look for and acknowledge spiritual growth that you see in others. And listen, we all have a long way to go. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that we sweep the hard stuff under the carpet or look past it or ignore it. But let us be found encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Check out Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25. Be affirmed And be an affirmer. And not necessarily in that order. Words of affirmation are encouraging. Encouragement from above prepares us for life here below. Appeals on our behalf are also encouraging. And Jesus' intercession for his disciples included appeals on their behalf. Look at verses 11 through to the end of verse 16. For what does Jesus appeal for on their behalf? Look at the middle of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Holy speaks of his transcendence. His perfection separates him from us by a long shot. But Father speaks of his intimate and continuous involvement. What a combination. And by the way, this is the only time in the entire gospel, where John uses this title for God, the Father. Holy Father. I don't think that's an accident. But what was he asking the Father, his Holy Father to do for these 11? Jesus asked his Father to preserve them, first of all. Keep them in your name. Is perhaps the preferred translation here. It suggests that Jesus was asking his father to ensure that these disciples would stay loyal throughout their lifetime. Whereas in the NIV, it offers a, an alternative translation, protect them by the power of your name. Here, Jesus would be suggesting that the father provide the means to ensure that they would be protected from what they run into. Regardless, both are possibilities. Perhaps the the first one is the most common and the best translation. But regardless, Jesus' prayer provides six reasons for this request on behalf of his alive disciples. And we're going to move through these really quickly. Reason one... His departure. Notice the first part of verse 11a. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. Jesus is anticipating his imminent departure, and he's leaving these men behind. Secondly, his desire for their unity. The second part of verse 11. That they may be one even as we are, We'll talk more about this next week in the final part of his prayer. But make no mistake about it. This kind of unity or oneness is a big deal for Jesus, for God, for the church, for his people. And we'll spend some more time on it next week. Thirdly, their vulnerability in his absence. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them. And I guarded them. He's no longer going to be with them. Number four, to provide a source of future joy. These things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Verse 13. And those things that he was speaking in the world included this prayer that they would recall after he's gone and find great encouragement in Number five, a hostile world. Look at verse 14. The world has hated them because they are not of the world. Remember what Jesus told them in John chapter 16? What was going to happen to them? The world would hate them, persecute them, unsynagogue them, and kill them. The world loves to hate followers of Jesus. Sixthly, the evil one. Look at verse 15. Keep them from the evil one. But Jesus' prayer for his disciples did not end with an appeal for their preservation. Notice verse 17. Sanctify them, in the truth, your word is truth. Jesus asked that the Father would sanctify them. If preservation is a good defense, sanctification is found on the other side of the ball, a good offense. A couple of observations for us to take note of. God's word, the word made flesh, In the person of Jesus Christ and the written word that we hold in our hands and read this morning is the means for sanctification certainly the sanctification that Jesus was requesting it's the word and secondly why does he pray for their sanctification look at verse 18 It answers the question as you sent me into the world. I also have sent them into the world. Jesus is sending them into the world in the same way the father had sent him into the world. And their sanctification was absolutely essential in order for them to fulfill their mission. And thirdly, notice their sanctification was made possible by Jesus willingness to sanctify himself in verse 19 not that he was going to somehow make himself more holy that was impossible he was perfect without sin but what he was doing was setting himself apart to do God's will for the sake of these men Apart from Jesus sacrificial death there would be no salvation No mission and no sanctification. Jesus' intercession for his disciples included appeals on their behalf for their preservation and for their sanctification. The same Jesus who now sits in that place of honor at the right hand of God interceding for us. Brothers and sisters, if We can't find encouragement in that. I'm not sure where we'll find it. God delights in providing spiritual support. Listen to this sample of the resources God provides for our sanctification. And this is just a a sampling, like those sample trays you see at Costco when you're shopping there. You just get a taste of this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am certain that God who began the work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. It's a promise. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us of God. Romans 8 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Listen, God is for us. And he provides these kinds of resources so that we can be sanctified. Folks, you and I are incapable of preserving or sanctifying ourselves. The best we can do is put ourselves in places where the Holy Spirit can do his work in our lives. And what is true for us individually is also true for us collectively. As elders, the best that we can do is to ensure that the Rock Community Church provides opportunities, as many opportunities as we are able, for participants to engage in activities that invite the Spirit of God to do his transformational work in our lives. Knowing that God delights in providing spiritual support. So let me encourage us to follow Jesus' example. Ask him. Make your appeal for yourself and on behalf of others. Allow me to read that quote again I read last week from H.P. Charles Jr. There is a lot you can do to help the situation after you have prayed. There is nothing you can do to help the situation until you have prayed. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. And the things we need God to do in our lives, God has wisely, profoundly, and graciously made them available to us. On the other side of prayer, words of affirmation are encouraging. Appeals on our behalf are encouraging. Encouragement from above prepares us for life here below. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 reads, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Wow. Pray with me. Father, you are a gracious and merciful God. Thank you for Jesus. He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He Lived a perfect life and then died a horrible death to pay the penalty for our sin. So that now by trusting him alone for our salvation, he brings us safely home to you. What a gift. And it doesn't stop there. He continues to affirm us and make appeals on our behalf so that we can live lives that please you. May that encourage us this week as we strive to be faithful in working out our salvation as you work within us. By your power and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.